0: Take us away. Okay. Um, So thanks. Dan Duhick here. And uh, today's topic, um, there was some interest in talking about suboxone and methadone um, and kind of exploring the difference. And what I thought I would do is just describe the two treatments and describe some of their differences and similarities. Um, And then I think probably what will be most helpful is for people to ask questions um, so that we can actually address kind of what, what people think about them. So Um, or want to know about them so just to kind of take a step back from that in this discussion when we're talking about the two of them we're really talking about ways to treat opiate addiction um, or what we call opiate use disorder And an opioid use disorder can be to pain pills or it can be to heroin or it can be to both Um, in other parts of the world it is also like to opium which we just don't see much around here Um, and some studies have been done kind of looking at, well, does, if you have a pill addiction, does that differ from a heroin addiction in terms of how long it is or how bad it can get or treatment? And it doesn't matter. Um, there's not really a difference. Um, I see in in the, in the kind of real world that when people start injecting things, uh, their addiction gets a lot worse, a lot faster. Um, but but in terms of you know heroin versus pain meds, um, the opiate addiction is an opiate addiction, and we really have two types of medicines that we can that we use to treat them. Uh, one is naltrexone, which is an opiate blocker, and there's a there's a form that you can take by by mouth of that once a day pill, or there's a once a month shot called the Vivitrol injection, and they're both they both have use um, for. For opiate addiction. They also can both be used for alcohol addiction. However, again, what we find is better better outcomes uh, with opiate addiction if people are on the shot. Uh, it's just too easy to stop taking the once a day pill. Um, and so people with alcohol addiction do a little bit better on the pill um, and they both do equally well on the shot. So that's one form. Um, but the problem with that shot is, or, or even the pill, is it since it's an opiate blocker, you have to have opiates totally out of your system before you take it, otherwise it kicks you into withdrawal. So you need to be able to go, if you look at the package insert, it says up to 14 days without opiates. I think that's a little much, but you certainly need to go at least five to like seven days without any opiates. And for people who are using heroin every day or for people who are using pain pills every day and they can't get that much time, they just can't stay away for that much time, That's not really much of an option because they just can't get that distance. And so really what they need is the other type of treatment, which we call opiate replacement, right? We're giving an opiate to replace the opiate that they have already. Um, And it turns out that with opiate addiction, whether it's this, this opiate blocker or opiate replacement, really what all the science says is we need to use a medicine to treat this addiction, which is not true of all addictions. Medicines can be helpful in alcohol addiction, but plenty of people do well without medicines. Medicines can help with tobacco addiction, but plenty of people do well without medicines. Um, Virtually nobody does well without medicines for opiate addiction. Um, In fact, uh, maybe one in 10 people do. So um, so it really needs to be with medicines, and that's made all the more important because um, people overdose uh, and die so easily from opiates. So the two forms of opiate replacement therapy we have are suboxone and methadone. And they are, those are the only forms. Now when I say suboxone, I really mean a medicine that you put in your mouth and that contains the, the, the drug buprenorphine. Some of them have other trade names that are not suboxone, but, but we call most of them suboxone. There are other names like Zubzolv. Um, it just kind of changes the dose a little bit so it could get a, another patent, but it's really buprenorphine that you put in your mouth or under your tongue. Um, <clears throat> and there are other opiates out there, right? And it might be that they work, but by federal law, we can't use any other opiates. This is a super, super regulated treatment. Whereas most of our treatments don't have any laws written about them. Right? There are no federal laws that say how you can and can't use penicillin. There are no federal laws that say how you can or can't use lithium or Prozac. We can use those for anything, um, whether there's science behind it or not. In this case, there's federal law that says that if you're going to use an opiate to treat an opiate addiction or an opiate use disorder, it can only be an opiate that the FDA says is appropriate for that use. And the, and the FDA has only said that two opiates are appropriate for that use, and those are methadone and buprenorphine or suboxone um, and there are differences between them so and there are similarities too Let's just deal with the similarities first and foremost. The similarities are that they both work equally well in treating addiction uh, to opiates, all things being equal and what that means is that when dosed correctly, they reduce people's cravings to use opiates, like illicit opiates. So then they're less likely to use the opiates. It's pretty much as simple as that. So if we can, so our goal in the clinic, like when we're dosing either suboxone or methadone, my goal is are the are the cravings either either significantly reduced or totally suppressed, totally gone. And if, if they're gone, then I'm at the right dose, as long as it's not causing, you know, untoward side effects. Um, if, if I'm giving a certain dose and people still have cravings, then in all likelihood, I may try a higher dose. Or figure out if there's something that's causing the cravings, like, hey, I have a craving every time I go by the house where I used to buy heroin. You know, maybe the answer there is not a higher dose, but like take a different route wherever you're going, um, which is a very real s- scenario. Um, so, so, so we try to reduce cravings and that's our goal. And it turns out that when these medicines, either one are properly dosed, we see some pretty significant, um, outcomes. What we see generally looking at kind of populations of people treated, we see reductions in illegal opiate use. We see reductions in opiate overdoses, as a result of that, we see reduction in deaths from overdose, That's that are it's pretty astounding, the difference. We see a reduction in people getting and spreading infectious diseases like HIV and especially Hep C, which is, Hep C, it turns out, is just really easy to spread with needles. Um, we see people less likely to get arrested. We see people um, more likely to get and stay employed and we see people um, more likely to pay child support. And so the neat thing about this combination of outcomes is that medication assisted therapy or opiate replacement is good for the individual and it's good for society. Um, there are other, also like in some areas, they've looked at crime rates and you see a reduction in burglaries in areas, for example, where they start to offer medication assisted therapy or opiate replacement. Um, that's probably also linked to the, the crime recidivism and, and decreased arrest rates. So those are what they have in common. What are the differences between them? Well, so everybody has heard of methadone clinics, right? And it seems like every time we've mentioned methadone, we talk about a clinic. And again, that's because of federal law. So the federal law that really came to, was written in the 1970s about methadone, by the way, Before that, all the way since 1914 to like 1973, it was illegal to treat an addiction with an opiate, and lots of physicians went to jail over those decades, uh, were actually imprisoned for trying to do the right thing. But finally, um, in the early 70s, the, the law was written that said that you can use methadone to treat an opiate addiction, but it has to be in what's called an OTP, an opiate treatment program, which is what we call methadone clinics. So it's like a special clinic that is both federally approved and state approved to to give methadone treatment. And the federal law about it is actually super specific. So it says what is required to be in that treatment. For example, you have to take your dose, what's called daily observed dosing, um, especially at first, where you take your dose in front of a pharmacist or a pharmacy technician on site. So you so. When you're at a methadone clinic, you go to a window and you take your dose, and you and, and it's liquid. It has to be liquid so that you can't cheek it and then spit it out and shoot it up or sell it later. Um, the, the law, federal law, says you have to be in counseling or therapy. Um, and I think the law says that it has to happen at least once a month. Some places, that's just the minimum. So some places offer it more than once a month and do what I think is probably a better level of care, which is what UNM does. Uh, but other places will just do the minimum. It also says you have to do urine drug testing, um, and that has to be at least once a month, and it has to be somewhat random. Um, and then there are a lot of other administrative requirements for the program. They have to kind of keep logs and um, uh, follow lots and lots of storage procedures and everything else. So when you go to a methadone clinic, it's, you you. The counseling, the medicine, the urine drug screens, it's all kind of in one shot. The other thing that the law says is how you get what's called take-homes. So, for example, the law says in your first 90 days in a methadone program, you can get one take-home dose a week, which means that a methadone clinic can be closed on Sunday, typically. And when you go on Saturday, you take your one take-home, or sorry, you take your one observed dose, and they give you Sunday's dose in a little little plastic jar. And so you can take that on your own on Sunday. After 90 days of working the program, which means that you don't miss any doses, you don't miss any therapy appointments, and your urines are are consistently clean, after 90 days, you can get up to two take-home doses a, a week. And after the, in the third 90 days, sorry, after the third 90 days, you can get up to three take-home doses a week. And then between that, that's day 270 there. Between day 270 and through essentially until the end of two years in treatment, the clinic can advance you, give you more take-home doses. And that's not as scheduled. By the end of two years in a methadone treatment program, if you've not missed any doses, you've not missed any therapy appointments, and your urines are all consistently opiate-free, then you can get up to a month of um, take-homes at a time. This is done to try and reduce diversion of methadone. But of course it's not perfect, right? Because right from the start, you are at least given one dose a week that you can possibly divert. And we all on the network know that methadone is diverted. Um, It has a pretty high street value. The main reason why it's built this way and to stop diversion is that methadone is extremely dangerous in overdose. It turns out it's extremely safe when it's really controlled at a methadone clinic because the law also states how you can dose it at first. For example, by federal law, your first dose cannot be more than 30 milligrams of methadone because no matter what your tolerance is, meaning if you have no tolerance, 30 milligrams of methadone is not very likely to to overdose you, but higher than that can. And then there are recommendations or guidelines about how you advance the dose. The the Goldilocks dose that we want, the kind of the right, the most therapeutic dose, is a dose between 60 and 120 milligrams a day. And this is all based on science. So we know that when people are on less than 60 milligrams a day, they're way more likely to die from a heroin overdose or or an overdose of using um, illegal opiates or, or abusing opiates. So it's just statistical. When you have them on the right dose, you're more likely to, again, um, suppress those cravings and not have them overdose. Doses above 120 milligrams a day rarely more effective. And I really am critical of clinics that go above that dose, um, and except in very rare exceptions. Sometimes there are patients who they don't have. They have these enzymes um, in their liver that that break down methadone too quickly and so they need higher doses but we can test for that now so there are sometimes you you encounter clinics who have a lot of people on higher doses and i just think it's mismanagement or i don't know what it is but we can just call it mismanagement Um, and so so it should be in that 60 to 120 milligram range now all of this only applies to methadone in an OTP, an opiate treatment program or a methadone clinic. Methadone can also be prescribed for chronic pain and none of these laws apply. Um, And so that, when we see people who are, who have died with methadone in their system and they've lethally overdosed on methadone, more often than not, it's from taking methadone pills. And these are typically coming from like pain clinics or people trying to treat pain with methadone. And um, again, methadone is just really dangerous and overdose. And so not a lot of people use it um, for pain. And when we teach people, I do a lot of teaching people how to use opiates and how to do pain treatment. And we're always saying like, if you don't know how to use methadone, don't try, you know, get with somebody who can teach you how to do it. Um, And so that obviously has a, a much bigger diversion potential because, you can give somebody a prescription for 30 days of methadone tablets and now they have, you know, a 30 day worth supply. Um, Chronic pain doses of methadone should also be much lower, like five to 20 milligrams a day, as opposed to 60 to 120. So that's methadone treatment, highly regulated, highly regulated. Um, Then there's suboxone treatment. So while the methadone law came into effect in the early 70s and was awesome because finally we were making a dent in the, in the addiction problem, there still was, was not enough methadone treatment, right? So, for example, in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, there are six methadone clinics. Five of them are for profit, and, and then there's UNMs, which I have to say UNMs is by far and away the best uh, in terms of quality, but others are good too. I, I don't mean to malign the other ones. Then there's, there's one methadone clinic in Española. There, I think there's a methadone clinic in Santa Fe, maybe. There's a methadone clinic, I think, in Belen. There's one in Gallup. And I think there's one in Las Cruces. So if you don't live in those communities, you don't have access to methadone. And even if you do, like the Española clinic, always full, always a waiting list. So sometimes there's not capacity. So there was this awareness that we needed another option. And it turned out that there was this very safe medicine called buprenorphine or Suboxone. And so in um, 2000, a a law was written to allow for another medicine to be used to treat opiate addiction, another opiate. And this one did not require an OTP. It did not require a methadone clinic. It could be used for what we call office-based opioid replacement or office-based opioid therapy, meaning that in just my normal medical office, I can prescribe it. And so that's Suboxone. And this could be done with Suboxone, and it didn't need all that regulation and all that um, kind of rules because Suboxone is super, super safe, except for babies. Uh, Little babies and little toddlers can overdose and die from it, stops their breathing. But in teens and adults, it doesn't stop your breathing. Uh, which is awesome. It's, it kind of blocks itself at higher doses, more or less. It's what we call a partial agonist um, and a partial antagonist. Um, and so, but same thing, we dose it for craving reduction or craving suppression. Um, and we can prescribe it. We can prescribe it a month at a time. We can even put refills on it where we can't put refills anymore on any other opiates. Um, like hydrocodone or oxycodone, can't put refills on those prescriptions. Um, and you're not required by law to be in therapy, although you are required as somebody who prescribes suboxone to be able to refer somebody to therapy. You just don't have to actually refer them. The the law says you have to have the capacity to refer, which I think means that you can say the word refer. <laughs> um And you're not required to do urine drug testing, although certainly that's good practice and all the guidelines that you should do it. So what else about suboxone? Um, A couple things. So suboxone is diverted, um, and it's diverted on the streets, and then it's diverted into correctional um, settings. What's interesting about its diversion is that, so people, first people were just telling us this, and then actually somebody studied it, and it turns out that the science also supported it. Most people on the streets that are using Suboxone because they, by diverting it, we say from non medical sources, right, that they bought it from somebody else, most of the time they're trying to treat their own addiction with it. Um, And one of the reasons why this is easy to believe is that Suboxone does not intoxicate you. It does not get you high. If you've never had Suboxone or if you've never had an opiate, that first dose, you might feel something, but you're not like nodding out um, like, you, you, like you are with heroin or with you know, a big dose of methadone. And then after that, it doesn't have any intoxicating effect. So it's not a party. You're not getting high. Um, but people try to do, you know, most people who are like deep into heroin or, or opiate addiction, They both kind of like it and also really don't like it. And so they're trying to do what they can to get off. So they score Suboxone. The problem with that long term is that it's expensive and it's not consistent or reliable, right? Your your source might run out. The price might go up uh, due to market forces. And so some people end up doing that until they can either get insurance or find somebody like me who can prescribe it to them and, and get into an appointment. All the time people are coming to me and they say, you know, I've been taking Suboxone on the street for the last three weeks, but you know, sometimes I can't get it and then I use heroin and it sucks. And I finally got this appointment, you know, can I get on the Suboxone? Another study that was done actually showed that if people tried Suboxone on the street before they ever got a prescription, they actually were more likely to stay on it longer when they finally got a prescription. It's almost like they're self-selecting for Suboxone working with them. Um, In correctional facilities, it's smuggled in, again, some people are trying to, to manage their own addiction um, in jail and prison, uh, but also people in jail and prison just use anything to try and escape the boredom and monotony. And so people will use or abuse things in jail or prison that we don't think of as things that get you high, and that's because they're just kind of desperate for anything. Also, Suboxone is really easy to smuggle. Because um, it comes in two forms. One is a, a little tablet that dissolves under your tongue, but the other one is a film, or people will call it a strip as well. And it's like paper thin, and it's about as big as your the nail on your little finger. And so it's really easy to like hide in between pages of a book, or for example, you can lick the outside of a stamp, like just around the outside of the stamp, and then put it on the dry part of the stamp and affix it to an envelope and smuggle it in that way. So it's really easy to smuggle in, which is one of the other reasons why it gets in. Um, so again, it, it has a bad rap, I think, with law enforcement because, of its, because it's diverted. But it's not killing people and it's not, you know, creating addictions. It's, it's an extra legal or an illegal market. Um, but there are far worse illegal markets. Um, so those are the major differences between them one is highly regulated and very structured and one is less structured because I don't work in a methadone clinic right now when people come to see me I offer them suboxone and if they do well awesome and if they don't do well on the suboxone treatment then I will generally refer them to a methadone clinic because some people just might need that more structure